Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me for the fourth and final episode of the December Mental Health Book Club that we're doing on Jeanette McCurdy's book, I'm Glad My Mom Died. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing chapters 72 through the end of the book. Before we get started, this episode does contain discussions of eating disorders and body dysmorphia, so be advised. I'm interested to hear y'all's reactions to how the book ended. This is not exceptionally deep, um, but I remember uh, in one of our last meetings, it might have been Angela, but I it could have been someone else where I said that I was, um, like I noticed the rivalry with Ariana Grande and uh, that it's frustrating as an outsider who has been working on themselves for a while because my opinion was that Ariana was just focusing on herself. So I, I chuckled at the irony of her being in the car and saying, hmm, maybe she's onto something. Maybe I should focus on myself while that single was playing. Um, but I, I found this ending to be perhaps more difficult for me than I thought it would be um, just because of that idea of boundary setting with people that you care about. And I'm in the middle of a, a friend breakup right now, which I thought would be easier than a romantic breakup, but it's still just a struggle. So I appreciated the ending. I did find it to be a bit abrupt, um, but maybe that's also what makes it realistic is that um, life isn't always tied off neatly with a bow. I found that last little bit when she was at the cemetery, I think when she was at the cemetery, when she was saying, you know, why can't we just like, I always wanted us to like climb in each other's arms and just start sobbing and forgiving each other and saying, we'll do things differently. It'll always be different. Um, But that can't happen. So, and I am kind of going through that right now with, um, with my mother, you know, knowing that she's never really going to change her ways. Um, And it's just hard. It's so I real that really resonated with me. And I don't know if you saw at the end, the dedication, she, she, Ari was one of the people that she dedicated the book to. So I'm assuming it was her. I didn't even put that together until right now. Thank you. To me, I kind of like how they ended it with, um, like going back to seeing the generational trauma and her kind of talking through the generational trauma, at least being able to talk through it. I mean, she's what in her twenties right now. Um, And especially how everything went down, life doesn't really tie up in a neat little bow. Setting boundaries with your grandparents and parents are one of the hardest things that you can do. Um, Siblings, um, in in looking at it, at least, you know, coming from my perspective, like her sibling relationship isn't what a lot of people would consider like a a sibling relationship. So that kind of stuff is really hard to navigate. Um, I mean, again, a 20-year-old wrote a memoir. So how are you going to end it? You know, she's still got a lot of life to live and a lot of therapy. I think therapy is going to be part of her um, life from now on and recovering from eating disorders is a lifelong thing. Recovering from childhood abuse is a lifelong thing. So um, I, 
again, I like this book. This is the second time I read it. Um, and it, it is really difficult. Um, and we, at least I wasn't taught boundaries. In fact, I was strongly encouraged to not have any. Um, and that was normalized in our household. So I, I, I think you just figure it out. And she's got some maturing to do, but she's done a ton for being in her 20s and having to go through what she's already been through already. I was just slipping through the back to just kind of refresh myself of how it ended. And before the very last chapter, there's a part where she's like, sure, I'm not 45 and that I am getting older. And so I think she realizes where she's at. But then um, she says, I don't want to become her. I don't want to live off chewy, chewy granola bars and steamed vegetables. Um, Mom didn't get better, but I will. And that part resonated with me. Um, I don't think I, like we all say this, right? Like, I don't think my situation was as severe as hers, but it was severe enough to cause damage to me, right? So I can't belittle what happened to me with my mother. Um, she just wasn't someone that was accessible emotionally. And there were things that she couldn't get past. And there were things that she couldn't, breakthrough. And I, I have said that I don't want to be my mom as far as that's concerned. Other aspects of her were fabulous. And I love that I have some of that, but, um, you know, just her being able to say that I will get better was encouraging because it is such a long journey with eating disorders and even alcoholism. Um, I think there's more to unwind with eating disorders, but the fact that she wants to get better to me was the um, the best ending that this book could have because it shows that she wants to move forward in a in a way different than her mother and break that chain that she got stuck in. And so for me, I really glad I read it. I think for me, a part that really stood out is her finally ending her relationship with Stephen, even though that was how she originally got started with really getting into therapy and things of that nature but she finally started putting herself first and i think that's one of the first times we really see her standing up to that and sticking to it if i were critiquing the book just on other memoirs i've read of course you can't compare one person's like life story to another it didn't give me the warm feeling of like resolution that books written by and i think uh you know what steph was saying is that you know this this is written, I believe Jeanette is in her third, early 30s, mid 30s or something like that. And that's a risk when you're a young person writing a memoir is that people will expect it to be something really profound, but you've, she's only lived a, a small portion of her life. So with that fairness, I will say that it, it didn't have a good sense of resolution. But again, she's practically my age. Like if I were to write a memoir, it would be very um incomplete at this point so but i did kind of break down the this last little part into like three sections there were a lot of resolutions to relationships be it with her mom her dating relationships and stuff like that we got a little bit more about the eating disorder i think you know in the in the last discussion we we really started to see that unravel and then i did find a couple points of like hopeful things that the book kind of left us with. So um, if y'all don't mind, we'll kind of go in that order. 
I think the relationships are a little bit more complex. So I'll start with the eating disorder and then we'll kind of, we'll be able to like end on a a better note, I think. So here's some of my notes and then we'll kind of open the discussion. She, her eating disorder definitely escalates to the point where she loses a tooth um, due to vomiting. And, but then later on, we see that she finds another therapist because in the last discussion, she had fired her therapist because therapy got too real, I guess. And, um, but later on, she finds another therapist and she makes it through the first 24 hours without binge purging for the first time in several years. Um, she does check herself into an eating disorder clinic and she kind of gets into her unhealthy relationship with the scale, um, to the point where I think she bought a new scale like every day and then ended up throwing it away. That particular one resonated with me because um, I grew up chubby and I went through like a really big uh, weight loss journey in 2011. And for years after I had, I had lost like a hundred pounds in like nine months, I was really working at it. But for years after that, I would say it took me a good like four or five years to actually accept myself. And the relationship with the scale has always been something that's been really a difficult thing. And more recently, at the end of, uh, I would say, probably beginning of August, I really started, because um, I was on a, uh, a particular antidepressant that apparently results in consistent weight gain. And I was on it for like three years. So I gained quite a bit of weight pretty rapidly. But because I have a, you know, through my own therapy, I learned to distance myself from the scale and like regularly checking uh, my weight. So when I finally did check my weight, I was like, what has this medication done to me? And so now I'm losing that weight. I'm like 23 pounds that I've lost since like the beginning of August, and I still have more to go. But um, even now, I weigh myself once a week and the the old thoughts of like wanting to go and check every day, it kind of comes creeping back. So I can definitely relate with the the problematic relationship with the scale and also the messages we give ourselves about what that number means about who we are and stuff like that. So I just wanted to share that little uh, tidbit, but I'm going to open up the discussion about her eating disorder in this section to see what y'all had gotten from that. I mean, I... I related to it, not from an eating disorder perspective, but from an anxiety perspective, I could feel her, um, like when she was on the airplane, her, her spiraling thoughts. Um, cause I, I have that exact same sort of thought pattern, but I don't, I don't purge to, um, make myself feel better. You know, I just, I don't know, keep it in or whatever. Um, but I, I, I have a similar, I, I don't look at the scale when I get weighed. I, I just can't. Um, but anyway, um, so I, I kind of, that resonated with me in the sense of the anxiety around just everything and then trying to have some control over something. Right. I get that. Like, like I'm like, feel like I'm like shoving my finger down my throat. Like, you know, I, I could really feel that. Jonzel, I really relate to what you said. I um, had a depressive bout when my niece got sick and subsequently died in 2011, 2012. And I was the biggest that I've ever been um, had, you know, I have three kids, so it's not easy to lose baby weight anyway. And then the youngest was 10. <laughs> so, um, and um, 
really for the next two or three years after that, I've really felt more obsessed with like the scale and losing weight and doing the things that I was supposed to do. I was always very thin growing up. Um, coincidentally, that happened to be part of, I have a genetic disorder, so I would have had no control over my weight anyway. Um, but the way that at least, I mean, my perspective is as an, an American woman. So at least the way that I was raised in um, the way that food was not meant to be fuel. <laughs> it was just, you know, it was social. It was, um, it could be used as punishment. It could be used as that. So I didn't have a healthy relationship with food anyway. Um, and then you add the scale, you add a weight loss journey and losing weight. Um, I lost close to a hundred. Um, well, I was like 75, 80. Um, but I feel like I gained and lose, lost the same um, weight. But that obsessive scale thing up to three, four, five times a day, there's really no difference except for now I know that I weigh less before 930 in the morning, you know, um, and now I just bought a scale again for the first time in like six years because one of my kids needed to be weighed and have a scale. But I see him kind of doing the same thing with weighing where I'm like, nope, this is no more than once a week you know, don't be obsessed about the number on the scale, you know, and talk through like what a healthy relationship is and like, do your clothes it, um, you know, like those kind of non-scale. I like that that's more common now, those non-scale victories when you're on that, um, because really up until very recently, it was be skinny or don't be noticed. And like, I want to give it to Lizzo because like she really helped with like the body positivity movement. You're a mute, but I saw you clap. Um, <laughs> she did such a great job of like, nope, this is it. And like, she's losing weight and very vocal about it, but it's not because of her size and the way that she feels about the way she looks, she's doing that to be healthy. And so like the last three to five years of like, just her being out and proud of body positivity has just helped tremendously. Um, and I, I, I mean, I bet most Americans could have a diagnosed eating disorder just because of the way that food is in this country. Um, never mind food insecurity, which was a whole nother thing, because when I got access to food, you know, you just kind of go crazy a little bit. And um, yeah, so I, I think it's tough. Um, I also am on the um, neurodiversity spectrum. So when I can eat, and what I can eat also isn't under my control sometimes. So I'm a big fan of if you're hungry, eat, listen to your body's cues. It took me a long time to be able to do that, though. Um, so that that kind of stuff is really good. Anyway, I love Lizzo. <laughs> There's so much in the end here with her eating disorder. Like that for me was um, you're got, you guys are talking about the scale. And that was one thing like there will never be a scale in my house ever again. Um, only because of like, I would excessively exercise in bed in the middle of the night. <laughs> and this was when I wasn't eating. So it just, they're just things that trigger or things that, um, like, I don't need to know how much I weigh. It's really irrelevant. So the only time I know how much I weigh is if I go to the doctor. Um, so I totally get the struggle with the scale and how that it just, does something to us. And I really believe that that's because of society and because of the standards that are constantly out there. Um, and yes, there are a lot of people who are making changes and, and advocating for 
just to be positive about our bodies, regardless of what we weigh or how we look. And that's amazing. Um, but specifically in the book, the one thing I really loved was how she sat down and explained when she was eating the plate of spaghetti. And I believe that she's probably doing um, DBT because I know I had to fill out these worksheets and my daughter had to fill out DBT worksheets where you have to explain your feelings and the things and everything that's attached to the moment that's happening. And I thought that was really good for her to share with people because I think it kind of illustrates more what's going on through um, a person's mind when they're going through an eating disorder. Um, So it's a little easier to relate to what she was going through if you've never experienced it yourself. Um, And to not like judge food I think that that's always a hard thing, especially now with, you know, um, organic, not organic, whole foods, not whole foods, processed foods, not processed foods. And sometimes it's like, you know, you get up late, you're rushed. Oh my gosh, I didn't eat. It's 1130 already. Yeah. Just go through the drive-thru and get a burger. So there's some food in your body. Don't worry about the fact that it's a burger. Don't worry about, no, you don't want to eat drive-thru food. Just feed your body. It's irrelevant. Yes, we all want to be healthy. Yes, we all want to make good choices, but sometimes you just have to make the choice. Um, so I liked that um, that was in there too, to just kind of that struggle of judging what you're eating because she would evaluate this has too much sugar, that has that. So this is a good food, that's a bad food. And and I think that um, that's where disordered disordered eating comes from. So you might not look like you have an eating disorder. You might not think that you have them, but like Steph said, probably most people have some type of disordered eating. And I think that's just because we weren't ever taught that food is fuel, like you said. So. And I wanted to to add to that too, because um, surprisingly, you don't hear a lot about like, you know, body dysmorphia or disordered eating or body image stuff from the perspective of men. Um, at least I don't see it too often, but to the the point of, you know, what Steph had said about a lot of people probably have some sort of disordered or unhealthy relationship with food. We've seen just through her experiences or even, you know, the stories that have been shared here, but there's a lot of messages. There's a lot of expectations. There's a lot of, and when it comes to food, it's a, it's an essential component of being alive. But everybody, just like everyone has an asshole, everyone's got something to say. It doesn't matter if it's what I would perceive as being a healthy meal. Someone's going to be like, oh, well, that's made with such and such or this. Like, it doesn't matter what you do as far as a diet or whatever. Somebody's going to say that it's going to kill you. Right. And we live in a very like... um, political um, information overload type of society to where one can't help but have a little bit of anxiety around things such as nutrition and exercise and body image and things like that, because it's constantly, there are multi-billion dollar industries all around it that profit off of it. But um, to kind of conclude this little sentiment here is that something that I can't remember who told me, but it was in the middle of my uh, first weight loss journey. Uh, And I will add to that. I did get to a point, you know, when I said I had lost like a hundred pounds in nine months, 
towards the hundred pounds that were lost, I was too thin. But then the because uh, I grew up in a very abusive childhood, to going back to the scale too, I was forced to stand on the scale and I was humiliated, which is a part of why I had such a, I still have a bad relationship with the scale. But when I was getting closer to that 100 pounds, it, it was body dysmorphia at that point, because I felt like I was still too big, um, but I did not look healthy. Um, I don't even have pictures from that time, because in hindsight, I look back and it it bothers me how thin I was. But I would say all of that did help me to where now when I'm losing this Prozac weight, uh, I'm on a different medication now that's not making me gain weight anymore. I'm being a lot nicer to myself because I know how I treated myself for the worst, the, the first weight loss journey and the getting on the scale several times a day, looking in the mirror, like there was definitely, and there still is like some body dysmorphia, disordered beliefs about eating and all of that. It, it truly is um, hell to be going through all of that in your mind. But meanwhile, people also have commentary on what your body looks like. So you're getting like, oh, you look so great and all of this. And then it's like, no, please don't look at me. Don't pay attention to me because now I'm, there's a, there's a focus on me. And it's like, it's truly like a war going on in your mind. I think I'm talking in circles here, but I'm sure that will make sense to those, you know, y'all here, but also those who are listening. So I will conclude the part about the eating disorder, at least what I'm going to say about it. When she was eating that chocolate chip cookie, I was so proud of her because it was the first time that she was able to just sit there and enjoy and she didn't think about the calories and she truly like was present. Oh, and what I was trying to get at before, something that somebody told me and then I got sidetracked. There are not bad foods, there's just bad diets. No food is really a bad food, it's just the diet. How much are you consuming? What's the moderation, right? And that's up to each individual, but a chocolate chip cookie is not a bad food. 20 chocolate chip cookies four times a day is a bad diet, but the food itself is not bad. So that's something that I've carried with me for many years now is that there's not bad foods, there's just bad diets. But your diet should be determined by you, not by society. So I'm going to end it on that one. But please, anyone who has anything else to add about this section on eating disorders uh, in the book, definitely uh, chime in. I just wanted to make a comment. I've never gotten as many compliments on my weight when I was the absolute sickest that I've ever been. And it was so opposite to my internal experience. And people would be like, oh my God, you look so good. When I couldn't walk a block, like I couldn't do things that other people could do, but I looked good. So I guess everything was good. And I know that I'm in, I'm in a lot of chronic illness groups, or, you know, I have a lot of chronically ill friends. Um, that's a very common experience too, um, where no matter how sick you are, you get a compliment of like, oh my God, what size are you? You're, you that look, looks so good in your dress. And it's just why people feel the need to comment on kind of stuff is just beyond me. But it, it, that dysmorphia just gets in your head and like being nice to yourself is so key. I don't remember where I saw it, but it was, would you talk to your best friend the way you talk to yourself? And when I, when I heard that, I was like, no. And then it really changed the relationship with how I spoke to myself through, throughout, you know, weight, throughout parenting, throughout, you know, the other stuff, but yeah. But thank you for mentioning that. 
um, the the comments, the commentary. Um, I appreciate that too because I didn't really. I mean, I've I've known. It's just interesting that now that I'm 50, I look back at when I was like 40, and I was like, wow, I was thin then. When I was 30, wow, I was thin then. When I was 20, wow, I was thin then. And at each step of the the way, I felt just terrible. Like I've never ever looked at my body and thought, wow, that's a that's a good body. Thank you for being my body, body. You know, never done that. And you know, I did have a mother who, you know, again would say things like, "You're going to eat that. That's going to make you as big as a house." You know, she mentioned when I first got married. I guess I'd gained some weight. Your arms are enormous. You know, like. So, um, yeah, looking, I mean, reading that and it, it, it kind of, you know, I know that this is the culmination of it, but back in the beginning when her mother was teaching her the eating disorder, it just, it, that part enraged me. And, um, yeah, I, um, I agree though. The, the struggle's real, man. We're just, I feel like we're constantly brainwashed with these expectations of how females or males are supposed to be, you know, males with a V, you know, the women, I, I, I grew up swimming. So I kind of, I'm just big, bigger framed. Um, and I don't know. It's it sucks. <laughs> and it, it goes both ways too, because, um, you know, disordered eating or body dysmorphia isn't always like uh, from people who feel too big. Because um, I'm currently mentoring um, a young man who, in his perspective, feels like he's too skinny and has been teased. And you know, people focus on that. Um, it's not talked about too much. Uh, in fact, it's usually parodied. Like if you think of like the show This Is Us, um, there was the girl. And I know, um, Angela, you had shared about going to um, uh, Overeaters Anonymous, um, but on This Is Us, the there's this one uh, woman, I can't remember her name, but she's in like the Overeaters Anonymous group, but she's like skinny. And one of the main characters in the show like had a problem with her about that. But, you know, it can go both ways. You can, uh, the way that you view yourself, you can think that you're too big. Um, or it could go the opposite way and you feel like you're not be- meeting a beauty ideal because you're too thin or, you know, and then we have to also factor in the fact that there's genetics and a lot of, you know, health issues and stuff like that going on. But um, I think we all here can agree that um, the way that we police bodies and, um, you know, talk to ourselves and uh, all of the mixed messaging and stuff, it's really, it's very, very toxic and exhausting, quite frankly. So I I commend uh, Jeanette for, you know, putting her, you know, the nitty gritty of her story out there, because I think it's going to help a lot of people. I mean, down to the vomit sliding down her hand and her arm, like that was just very graphic. Um, but it needs to be said, you know, it needs for her anyway. It's that's I think it said something about someone was like asking her for an autograph or something like while she's she was actively vomiting in the bathroom and a little hand went under the stall and tried to get her autograph and she couldn't because her hand was covered with vomit which again though talks about the celebrity 
and why she hated it to begin with. She had no privacy. Um, so we're going to shift gears and move on to the relationship. So throughout this memoir, um, there are a lot of relationship storylines going on. So the ones that I, I'll just jump in with my notes and then we can kind of unpack based on some observations that y'all had. There was the therapy relationships, which we saw uh, unfold here. There was the, I think it was Laura was the name of the the first therapist, the one that kind of helped her um, at that event where, you know, she was eating the sliders and then she kind of like came alongside of her and said, hey, we're not going to, I'm proud to see you eating and stuff. Um, I wish I could have gotten more resolution on that because I felt like the firing of that therapist was very abrupt. But again, as a therapist, people will stop coming to therapy often and I never really know what happens to them. So in my head, I'm like, oh, I wish we could have known what happened with the relationship with her therapist, Laura. But I also know firsthand, sometimes people, you know, will ghost their therapist because, you know, maybe it's not a good fit or maybe they're insecure about something or the therapist like, um, you know, kind of touched at a a sore subject that they weren't ready to deal with. So um, I'm sure a a combination of those things were going on, but uh, there was a therapist relationship. I'm sure I'm going to let y'all chime in on Steven because he turned out to be a mess. And, you know, there's the relationship after uh, her mom dies where she's trying to get her dad's side of the story. And then, we also get the the bomb that was dropped about the paternity of Dustin, Scotty, and Jeanette. So I don't want to give all of the details there, but there were a lot of relationships that kind of came to a head here. So I'm interested on y'all's thoughts on that. I thought Stephen was a really valuable character because, yes, it did get messy at the end. But when we were discussing our last section of the book... We were talking about how it was nice that he was the first person that had stood up to her and said, you know, we don't do this. Um, And so I think that was something I was reflecting on, especially as I, you know, said, I've had my bad romantic relationships, but now I'm setting a boundary and probably ending a friendship with a friend. And something that has really helped me to get through that is to just think like, it's not what it was, but what it was at one time was good. And that, that part is valuable and I'm not going to negate that or, or say that, that, that doesn't hold a place in my, um, my life. Um, I have a friend who was explaining to me that the way she looks at, um, exes is that it's a, it's a museum and some of them are just a nice painting on the wall. And then some of them are your Davids and some of them are your Michelangelo's that you really stop and reflect and you admire on that time in that period in your life for a long time. It's been a long time looking at those. Um, but they're not the piece of art. They're not who's in your home. They're not the real person that you love. They're just a memoir. Um, and, and that's, that's okay. Like to have that. And we don't need to trash what was because it wasn't forever. Um, and that's something that's really, really hard for me that grief of something that's still alive, but just not what it it needed to be. And so, you know, I appreciated that, that breakup, you know, cause they both know, they both know that it's just not a thing anymore. And you don't, you don't always get that. And you don't always have that 
sad but peaceful resolution. But, um, you know, that's something that I'm always actively working on with myself. And though it wasn't, though it was abrupt and perhaps their connection wasn't as strong, I also appreciated for that reason, you know, the professional breakup with Laura. Um, because I thought that, and this could be my own mind filling in blanks, perhaps this isn't what happened in the book, but I thought it was interesting. Some of the lines that the new therapist said that kind of indicated that like, um, you know, therapy is hard work. And that's something that we don't always talk about is that you probably and likely will feel much worse before you feel better. Cause all those things that you've packed so deep down, you have to start looking at. And that is why people quit therapy sometimes. And it doesn't mean that Laura sucked at her job. Did I love everything she did or said? No, but like, you know, we, I've quit therapy like four or five times and then go back to someone else. It's just something that happens. Um, and same thing. It's not a friendship and it's not a romantic relationship, but doesn't mean that I didn't find some value and that that moment with the cheeseburger sliders wasn't important. It's okay. It was what it was and it ran its course. And that's, that's part of, that's part of growth and that's part of maturity. And that's part of, uh, having our own boundary and the expectation that our control is that we can't control it all. And we allow things to run their course and we walk away. Thank you for that. Um, with, I think one of the biggest lessons that I learned in my 20s, I, I turned 30 last year, is, you know, when we're young and when we're like, you know, kids and teenagers, we think that we have this like fantasy that like our friendships at that time will last, like BFF, best friends forever, right? Uh, one of the hardest and most valuable lessons that I learned in my 20s is the acceptance of the fact that relationships are not always um eternal or like for the long haul like sometimes they are seasonal and like you said it can be like a museum you can really appreciate where that person was in your life for a period of time but you can also set a boundary and say okay this has run its course and i'm going to move on from this uh of course the separation and you go through a grief process and um like Brianna said, it's a, uh, a grief of somebody who's alive, you know, but accepting that not everything is supposed to be forever and that it can be temporary. Um, I think that was like the hardest lesson that I learned over and over and over again, because 20s are filled with so many life transitions. But yeah, once you kind of grasp that, things get a lot easier. You, you have a little bit more perspective on things. So I just wanted to add that. Um, I kind of feel like you're talking to me. I know you're not, but you're just, you know, like I am probably going to get upset, but you know, I need to disrupt the relationship between me and my mom and she's my mother. You know, she's not, I don't know. It's just, but it's, it is, it's like, it's the relationship has run its course and that's hard to believe. And for me to kind of wrap my head around that with a parent that it would run its course, but it has because she's not contributing anything healthy for me anymore. And so, sorry, I just, oh, you were just kind of cut right through me. So 
yeah, that just, that really resonates with me. I think something that's helpful for me in that understanding of relationships that are just at their end of their road is some of those things I've really had to put people in my museum, but for some others, it's just been a change in our relationship. And to a degree that includes my, my father right now, it's run its course for what it was, but he's still my dad, but it's not, you know, it's just not what it was. And that, again, that grieving of someone who's alive is, is very hard but I stopped trying to make it what it, I wanted it to be because it's not what it was. And that's not to say that every situation, every relationship, every person is different, but some people for me go into my museum, um, you know, like Steven, Steven, I think is going to be in her museum is what it kind of sounded like. Whereas her, her father that she knew is her, her father growing up that she only found out did not biologically father her. Sounds like he might, that relationship just might change its course. Like I, I thought it was funny, but also tragic that the last word was potato. Um, and that there was, there was some insight into what her mother had said. Um, but seems like she still keeps up with him sometimes. And that was, you know, that's just hard to like, when do you decide to put someone in your museum and when do you decide and can you, and when should you, and how do you, and how do you effectively change the relationship as a whole? I just want to say to Becky, like, thank you for being vulnerable and saying that. That was something that where I was about 20 years ago with my mom, it does get better. Um, I feel for you. Um, Brianna, thank you for everything that you said. I, I did write down and I'm going to steal like people are in my museum. Um, I love that. And just because we're talking about relationships and therapy, um, I'm in the mental health space. That's what I do professionally. Um, therapeutic relationships is like dating, is like relationships. Sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it doesn't. Like, I think John Zell's hilarious. But if John Zell pushed a wrong conversation, I may ghost him as a therapist. Like not really, but like kind of, you know, and we see that all the time, at least professionally, um, you know, you can have a new patient and then they could be gone three weeks later and you could say boo, you know, and, and it's just one of those things that you have to kind of be ready for it and nobody can really make you <laughs> um, and nobody can make you like heal or, or go through it and these kind of relationships, I mean, the book's called I'm glad my mom died, but these are these are people that brought you into the world. You're 50% of each of their DNA. Um, making a call to put a relationship with your parents in a museum and just know that it's around its course. It's a it's a hard grief and it's a very distinct grief because they're two hours away. Like I could literally call them. I'm not gonna, but I could. Um, and Becky, I don't envy you for it. And it's a decision each one of us has to make for ourselves. I cannot have a relationship with my parents. Um, I'm working on a relationship with one of my sisters. There's not a lot of siblings I can have a relationship with either. It was really set up. I was set up to fail and I won't do that. Once I had children, I had children very young, but once I had children, it was protect them mode. And we've raised them outside of the influence of my parents. And boy, did I, 
those lessons you learned in your twenties, like I'm still learning them. And I'm in my early forties, you know, like I did think things were forever. I did think that there was more of an object permanence once I got out of my mom's house, because that was so wrong that then I had to relearn how much I didn't know, you know, cause you don't know what you don't know until you are faced with it or whatever. But, um, I, I'm really glad I read this book with you guys. I really am. Thank you. I mean, the gift that she gave me was the roadmap of what not to do. Exactly. Exactly. All I had to do was raise my kids opposite and they're fantastic. They're yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And, I, and I'll catch myself saying things sometimes like, like I just did the other day, like, you don't know what stress is to my 16 yeah. year old son. And I rewound that. And I said, you know what? I just negated your feelings. And I'm sorry, that was not my intent. Um, you are stressed. I, you know, I know stress, you know stress. They're just unique in their own way and affect us in our own special way. And I want to hear about it, you know? And so that's part of me trying to break this cycle of, you know, you're not important, which Jeanette too is, you know, she's, it's hard. It's so hard. <laughs> Um, and to add a little bit more encouragement too, I mean, this is definitely not like a broadcast for, you know, cut off your parents, but, um, me personally, um, uh, similar to what Steph had said, I, I don't have anything to do with, uh, both of my biological parents. One, uh, was much easier than the other cause he was a deadbeat, but my mother, um, it was after my daughter, Maya Jane was born and it was this whole you know, she was born, I would say, three months before the pandemic hit. And it was this whole controversy about whether or not um, my mother would get vaccinated and all of that. And it was like a minor thing, but a very, very serious thing. And the way that the dysfunction rolled out in that particular instance was the final straw. It was years and years in the making. And I had done uh, several like strong boundaries where I'm really just going to take a couple years here and there to like be very distant and the way that it played out in that particular thing and seeing that I had my own child to uh, protect and care for, I finally made that slice in the relationship to where it's like, this is where this um, pattern stops. And like both of y'all said, my parenting manual is the ass opposite of what minded and so far Maya Jane is thriving so I'll leave it with that my parenting plan is to read a parenting book and do the opposite that's it mm -hmm. like yeah but you know they did the best they could libraries existed the internet existed for most of them starting in the 90s so well, that's not the best you could humanity existed and mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. like they should mm -hmm. have some sort of sense of i'm hurting mm -hmm. my child maybe i shouldn't do that the thought of humiliating my child has never once crossed my mind ever no. and i was no. told repeatedly when i was a when i was a kid when i had kids i would understand the way she acted why she acted the way she did and i would understand and i would have had no concept of that until i had kids no she's an abusive person she is an abuser. I didn't have those thoughts because I'm not, you know, and that's it. You know, some people should not it, have children. I'm glad I'm alive. It, some people should not have children. 
and stuff. I always say like the older I get and the more seasoned I get as a parent of a 22 and a 16 year old, mm-hmm. the less I understand how she could possibly do and allow the things that she did. I don't, I don't for the life of me there there's because it's not on my radar as a human to allow that to happen to my children. I fully believe I would walk through fire for them. You know, like it would, there'd be nothing that would stop me from protecting them. Um, I'm lucky that my mother lives in Arizona. So she's not just, (laughs) she's a full on planned trip, you know, like (laughs) ahead. Um, But yeah, I, um, and she would manipulate. She would ask my kids, don't you want to come see Nana? And I would yell at her and not yell, but I'd say, no, you know why they can't. Mine would ask my child who is now 16. So I have 16, 22 and 18. Um, But mine would ask my 16 year old who was then eight at the time, like would Facebook message them about sleepovers. And I'm like, adults make plans with other adults. Don't, don't, don't do this. It's just basic stuff. Um, And I really had what, what, you know, the narcissistic abuse recovery community calls like a smear campaign. So um, that kind of stuff, when it's done by your parents, and your family, like, it's not okay. Um, and it's not how you should treat people. Thank you all for sharing. And bringing it back to, obviously, we were talking about, like, uh, Jeanette's mom and Steven, too. I'm just going to give a quick rundown th- of some of the things that kind of happen in that. So we we find out that Steven uh, was undiagnosed with some level of, like, schizophrenia. He ended up in the psych ward. Um he had to use like psychiatry and therapy services. Um, but then he also developed like a problematic, like marijuana addiction, but her, uh, Jeanette's, you know, and of course, Jeanette, not knowing anything about boundaries um, is trying to either people please enable slash save this person. Um, but luckily her new therapist uh, comes on the scene and basically explains to her how the relationship was codependent. So, you know, this is a mental health book club, but wow, if Steven's case did not have a bunch of mental health uh, stuff falling out of it. I, he started out as kind of like the, oh, this is like the first guy she connected with and things. And that's why uh, what Brianna was saying is like, there were so many good things about this relationship that, I taught Jeanette a lot of lessons and things, but there were some challenges and it seems that Steven was on his own mental health journey and they realized that it wasn't conducive for them to stay together, but it would be interesting to see, uh, you know, possibly Jeanette will write another memoir later on in life. I would be interested to see how, if she decides to have children, what that will do because like we were just saying having children really does help you to uh, fast track some of this like healing journey and wounds that may have been placed by your own parenting situation so did anyone have anything to add about the um, the relationship with Jeanette and Stephen? I think this also comes to the idea that hurt people hurt people And um, it's interesting. I really appreciate what people have shared personally tonight. Um, But, you know, it it really does come full circle because I think we began this discussion tonight about talking about how beautiful it was that she made the conscious choice that this is not going to be me. I am going to change. 
Um, my boyfriend calls himself a recovering douchebag. I hate that he does that, but the stories that he tells me of how he treated friends, how he treated women are pretty horrific. Um, and when we first got together, it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really, it was one of those things where we just kind of met out in the wild, not on an app or anything and really clicked. Um, but I wasn't sure how long he was going to stay in town. Um, as he got to know me, he did decide to stay here and continue to pursue, um, business opportunities here, but he says, and I see that it can be, um, hard for him that we live in a smaller area and everybody knows him from when he was younger. I didn't live here when I was younger. I moved here now. And, um, you know, that's something that I worry about for him also for our relationship. Uh, I think he is living proof that when you do the hard work on yourself, people can change, but you do have to do the hard work. You have to, you can't get around it. And it's so interesting because he's very physically attractive. Um, a lot of people will comment on that or somebody will be like, what do you think is the sexiest thing about, you know, your boyfriend? And I'm like, honestly, uh, personal accountability is very, very attractive. Um, he holds himself fully accountable for everything that he does. And then it's not a fight. It's just, I'm sorry I did this. And here's what we need to do to move forward. It really minimizes conflict. Um, and our relationship and it's not something I ever experienced prior to dating. Um, and what they don't tell you is that the healthy relationship after the unhealthy ones is really, really hard because of the distrust. Um, because you know, you're always wondering what someone's ulterior motive is and who's very patient with me and he's very kind, but objectively and honestly, those things that he did when he was younger are true. It's factual. It happened. Um, and so reading, you know, that she's made that conscious choice to change makes me think like she's changed. She's out there. She's writing a book. She's putting it out to the world. Um, Brent is an amazing partner and he really provides for me emotionally. Um, and I'm trying to change myself too. And, you know, it, it can be done. So just that nugget of hope. It's really nice that we're having this discussion tonight too, on January 2nd, you know, reflective time of the year, but yeah, hurt people, hurt people. And, um, he, he's in somebody's museum and he's a villain in somebody else's story, even though he's the hero in mine and probably maybe not to the same degree, or maybe so I'm sure that I am in someone's museum and I'm villain in someone else's story. It's the way of the world. I like that you said hurt people, hurt people, because while I'm listening to everybody, all I can think about is how terribly broken both of my parents were. Um, I think they, both of them were the beginning. See, it's so hard because when you've been in therapy long enough and have actually um, been honest in therapy, right? So like Jeanette stopped being with Laura, but that's partly because Jeanette wasn't ready to be honest with herself. She wasn't willing to be fully honest with Laura. So that's not always a situation that's going to work. I used to lie in therapy all the time. So that I would hear what I wanted to hear. And then, oh my gosh, I'm fine. I can stop therapy now. So that happened a lot when I was younger. And then this realization that 
my parents were actually the first ones to start breaking the chain of abuse. Even as broken as they were, my dad was an alcoholic who smoked pot every single day. My mom was very depressed and very distant and unavailable emotionally sometimes. But I also always felt unconditionally loved, if that makes any sense, (laughs) to feel neglected and unconditionally loved at the same time. Only because I needed certain things, but they couldn't actually provide them because of their brokenness. So I never, they never spoke poorly to me. They never treated my sister and I bad. There was just this mild neglect due to brokenness, which then did, of course, affect me. But then I saw what I didn't like. Then I made changes when I had my children. And now I'm watching my children make changes from what they had with me because I had my own brokenness. And to see them thrive as parents, to know that my grandchildren will not be have anything close to what my parents went through is just very healing in and of itself. So to know, um, Steph and Becky, that you have done that for your children, I want to say thank you because I didn't get to say it to my parents because they're both gone. And I don't like reading that last chapter of this book because my stuff with my mom was never resolved. We never had those conversations. When my dad got sick, we had those conversations because he was the nurturing person that I needed my mother to be. And so, you know, it's just to watch her go from Laura then to Jeff Laura was another woman. So what has she always seen? She's seen domineering women control her and that that red flag just went up. Jeff was a guy. The men in her life didn't do that to her. So I think she was more open to that relationship than she was to Laura. I think she tried with Laura. She really did try, but it wasn't the fit that she needed. And then with Stephen, it was good to eventually see her realize that this was not healthy for either of them and then to let go of that. And now the relationship that she has to put all the work in is the one that she has with herself, which I think we all need to do because I just feel very honored to be here with all of you, to go walk through this book with you, for you to be vulnerable and to share your stuff, for me to feel vulnerable enough to share the stuff that I've shared. And it's just nice to know that um, you can do that with strangers. You know, that the relationships that we're learning from in this book can actually affect the relationships that we have. And um, Brianna, I just let go of a friendship this year that has been in my life for 15 years. And it was a great relationship. Her and her husband were our best friends and we did stuff together all the time. And then he passed away a few years ago. And what I realized was he was the one that I was more friends with than with her. And then she got to be very um, codependent on me where she was messaging me first thing in the morning, all through the day. And then literally at the end of the night, asking me how my day was, even though she's talked to me all day long and I just couldn't do it anymore. And I had to walk away from it. And it was very sad. And there's a lot of grief when you let go of a relationship, but if you know something is not healthy for you, you have to do what's best for yourself. 
and try as, I mean, I tried as much as I could to not hurt her. And I don't know if that happened. I'm sure there was hurt because I was hurt, but sometimes we just have to make those choices and we have to know that it's for our benefit so that we can be a better friend to somebody else. So, and I wasn't being a good friend to her. I was ignoring her as much as I possibly could during the day. That's not nice. That's not good for her. And um, so, yeah, I, I've learned a lot tonight. Thank you. We, we had a surprise in the last episode of the uh, revelation about the... Yeah, my bad. Sorry. My bad, my it's bad, a, my bad, my bad. It's, a, it's okay because I edited it out of the episode. Uh, oh, so sweet. It never, <laughs> it, it never happened. Um, but um, the, you know, Dustin, Scotty, and Jeanette um, had a different father then I can't remember what the other sibling's name was, but uh, this was after mom had already died and it was, um, you know, so I just wanted to to touch on that because it, it was big. I think it was big. And then in hindsight, reflecting on the way that she treated Jeanette's dad, the mom treated the dad, just adding insult to injury, just kicking him while he was down I don't know what the dynamics of their marriage, their, the dynamics of their marriage was, but based on what Jeanette like kind of told, like what a piece of work. And like, I know that doesn't even like delve even deep, but like, that's the only phrasing I found so far for my mom that kind of like encompasses the, all the ish, but like just the hypocrisy. And it's really common with people that at least in my experience with, heavy narcissistic traits or cluster B personality disorders, the hypocrisy, also the gaslighting and the, you know, blaming and the projecting, but the hypocrisy. And so when I read that, I was just like, Oh, of course, of course. And of course it doesn't come out until after she's died because why face the consequences of your own actions? You know, like whatever. I mean, but she was play acting at having cancer the entire time so that it came back. There's something to be wishing that into the universe too. Um, uh, I just, I, 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 it just makes me so irate for Jeanette finding this out and then like finding out that there was a custody battle going on while she was being taken. Cause I mean, the custody battle was going on in the beginning when she was six, you know, during all those, auditions and stuff so then when you piece it together it's kind of like you know watching a thriller getting to the twist and having to reflect back on everything and again I apologize for you know spoiling it last time but oh I was so like osmosisly mad for her (laughs) like just just irrationally like very upset and angry like but also like not surprised you know at the very at the very same vein, you know, and that's just so disrupting to find out that late in life that your biological father or your, you know, is not, you know, you see those things coming up right now with like the ancestry DNA kits and people trying to keep secrets and. Ah. I've had two friends in the last year find siblings. Yep. <laughs> One didn't even Secret know siblings. Her, her dad was running around like they didn't know that she and then they go meet her and she looks exactly like all of them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that was like, like the weird part for me too. Now, I think we've well established that Jeanette's mother made a lot of mistakes 
had um, some narcissism, was very unkind. But I was also thinking it, it just really bothered me, her reunion with him. I understand that he was blindsided. I understand that somebody just walked up to him. Um, but the tears in his eyes, this, that, and my thing was, are, are those tears of remorse because you, you've never reached out? Are those tears of confusion? Because you didn't do this with one kid. You did this with three kids. And that that was the part that I was just like, you're not off the hook either. This is very, very, very strange that you made this mistake with this woman, not once, not twice, but three times. Like, a fair aside, you think you're going to wrap it the next time? Like, I just don't understand. <laughs> like, it what so yeah i i was i i had to go take a walk and as a therapist i i truly love my job because i though i'm doing work i am thoroughly entertained daily uh by the messiness of human life but it happens like uh i mean i one of our um book club members had mentioned in the last episode that she found out uh, late in life that uh, one of her parents wasn't biologically um, hers. And uh, in sessions with clients, I'm finding out the, there's a very similar actual uh, situation to Jeanette's um, uh, dynamic that's going on in one of my, uh, some of the work that I do as a therapist. And, you know, it, it doesn't stop surprising me. Like I, each year I like will meet new clients and I'll say like, Oh, you can tell me anything. I don't think anything can surprise me at this point. But sure enough, I mean, it just keeps getting more and more interesting. Um, so this is definitely indicative of real life. Uh, but in particular, I mean, Jeanette's mom had to clearly have been in a whole relationship with this person. But then also, like, the extent that she was so, like, codependent and over involved in her kids' life. I wanted to know when she slept because quite frankly, where do you get the energy? We'll never know. On the Sunday mornings when she didn't take them to church. That was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were yeah. they were the bad Mormons then. Yes. Sorry. She the bad she she monitored everything that she did. You know I don't that? understand. But think about it, right? She's having sex on the side, forgive me, but raw dogging it with some dude, right? The same dude having multiple children with a man who she clearly does not love and respect in any way, shape, or form. So, and there's a custody battle going on between them. So she's probably clutching as tight as she can to these children to keep them from growing up and finding out the truth which ultimately they did when she passed away, but only after so. And I mean, it just speaks volumes to her. I mean, it's it's not even hypocrisy. It's almost like, um, I don't know if it's deflection or, or no, not deflection. What is it when you put your, the, the word Projection. that you're saying? Hmm? Projection? Yeah. Are you thinking She's, about the email when she calls? Projecting, but it's about her. Everything she's doing is really about her. She's almost, she's like, this, and then I'm self-preservation might be what you're thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's got this house of cards that she's built 
that she's hanging on to with dear life that's, you know, put together with duct tape. It's like MacGyvered together with gum wrappers and, you know. And I think the dynamic with Jeanette being the only daughter was different than the dynamic with the sons. Like, I watched it, how my mom was with my brother, my younger brother, who was the youngest of us who grew up, and Jeanette being the youngest and the only daughter. That dynamic plays out. They normally pick a kid. And Jeanette was a golden child upon golden child. I mean, shoot, she was supporting the family at six years old. You know, they pick a kid and that's their entire world and their life. And it just is played out time and time again. And like, it's now 2023. Like, it's not a shock that children are born out of affairs. It's not a shock that people lie. It's not a shock that people project. What is a shock is when you do that much damage to your child, putting on what you did, and then honestly got away from it scot-free because she passed away before she had to actually deal with the repercussions of her children knowing. Um, And the dad, as soon as she passed away, I mean, he got into a relationship with her best friend, if I'm remembering correctly. And like, she was, Sure, but like that's weird too. I mean, within like, a week, we've mentioned something? about friendship breakups. I'm sorry, what wasn't it within a week or like at the funeral? He was, yeah, it was, it was her yeah. phone number. I mean, we all know what rebound relationships are, right? Like, this is not a surprise that he did this, but it is a shock that he wouldn't have told them, he wouldn't have come clean. He was an adult in the situation too. These children should not have been the adults moving this stuff around. Kids get permission to be kids. Adults have to deal with the adult consequences. And I've seen it time and time again where parents or adults are like, well, you should be more mature. You should be whatever. My parents couldn't teach me what they didn't know, you know? And um, I grew up in a very, with the, with the fundamental religion steel backbone behind it too with you know, if mom and dad aren't watching, God definitely is. So that's not threats and that's not a way, you know, that's not a good way to do things. But yeah, I just. Well, I think she picked men who were very weak too. And that she, yeah. she, as soon as they upped their strength, she upped her crazy, like every time. I mean, mm-hmm. up, up to and including holding knives, you know, I mean. You know, at some point, they're just going to be like, all right, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, let's not wake the beast here. Um, yeah. I want to bring back to what Brianna said about, and thank you for sharing that, Brianna, about your your partner and how much work that he's done. And being the villain in somebody else's story, the thing that makes villains different than, like, heroes is going and taking care of your own, cleaning up your own mess, facing the consequences of your own actions, if therapy works for you, then therapy works for you. I'm a big fan of therapy, so try it, you know, but doing better and breaking these curses and, you know, like I made a million mistakes, uh, you know, uh, never mind like with my kids, like every day, you know, but I apologize. The world would stop spinning on its axis if my mother ever entered, like spoke the words, I'm sorry. Like it literally would be the shock of a lifetime. And doing that kind of stuff and saying, like, Becky, like you were saying, like, hey, I might have minimized your stress. You know, like doing that kind of stuff for your kids. I never thought that. 
I didn't get that from my parents, you know? And so like my kids are very aware what the relationship is. My kids have ex- seen and witnessed a lot of this stuff. My kids were part of the decision to go no contact. They, they had a voice even at 10, 11, 12 um, in regards to this. And I didn't hide it from them because my mom definitely didn't hide it from them, you know? So, and I, I still deal with stuff all the time. Like her sister, I saw her sister like a week ago and it's, she's your mom. She's not that bad, whatever. And I'm like, no, no. And you don't get to know information about me if you're going to share it with her, you know? No. And that's kind no. of where I am with my, my nuclear family. They're like, but you only see her a couple of times a year. She's old. She's going to eventually die. Like, it's not that bad. But- cool. But they don't have to deal with her like you do. <laughs> Like, cool. No, no, that's minimizing your right. <laughs> and when I'm with her, I literally I break out in hives, like on the yeah. side that she stands. No, your body, to. your body is telling like you it, what you need to do. Like she's right. She, she has to be on my right side and my right side breaks out in hives. I can feel my flesh yeah. burn. So I have to I mean, my, your, body, my, your body's talking to you. And then as soon as she leaves, I texted my friend and I was like, the hives are back. And she goes, they'll go away when the bad lady leaves. <laughs> That's my mom. Like, so fucked up. In the interest of time, I'm going to shift gears again. I know we could definitely unpack a lot from this section. I will say as far as the, the father and the things that were like uh, unveiled at the end, uh, of course, we don't always get like a sequel and we don't always get closure to stories, I guess. But I would be very interested to learn more about how possibly, you know, some ther- family therapy sessions might go between Jeanette and her biological father, like possibly him becoming accountable for the fact that he didn't have a backbone enough to, you know, be part of his children's lives. And but we may not ever get that side of the story. And the fact that she shared as much as she did in a book is, um, you know, pretty uh, profound, I think. But while while we have the book that we have, uh, there were a lot of hopeful things that kind of we saw at the conclusion. Like I said in the beginning, uh, I, did, I, I didn't feel like the warm hug of, a oh, everything's going to be okay at the end of this memoir like I typically do. Uh, but most of the memoirs I've read are of people who are probably, you know, uh, 10, 20, 30 years older. So um, some of the hopeful things that I um, saw in this last section, she really does have a ongoing friendship with Miranda Cosgrove, who was on that show with her. And I want to say that, yeah, that that relationship was very, like, supportive uh, and she she also makes the decision that she's no longer going to visit the grave. I felt I felt that to be very uh, showed a lot of maturity and growth on her part. That the bond and the chains that were put around her and that codependency started to break away because it's you know you saw how even in death the mom still had a codependency on her. Um, so I found that to be very uh, healing. And I mentioned before she got to enjoy her chocolate chip cookie without the. Um, you know, grip of the eating disorder, um, making her suffer. And then finally, it's a small thing, but she quits acting because of the, all of the expectations and pressures around it. And she even refused the iCarly reboot, which her reasons for it were really interesting. And I just, 
I felt very proud of her because she's finally taking uh, uh, agency over her own life and she's doing things her own way. And so I, I found those kind of, you know, while it wasn't a complete closure, um, I found those things to be, it, it gave me a sense of she's going to be okay. Cause you know, you, you've kind of been in this person's life, you're in their head and you don't know if you're going to get more, but it's like, okay, well, I think Jeanette is going to be okay. And so those were my takeaways. Did anybody else uh, see or hear anything uh, or read anything uh, in the last um, section that you found to be kind of hopeful or possibly anything you've seen like in an interview or anything like that, that you might want to share to end this series on like a, a hopeful note? I thought that her rationale for Miranda was one of the most hopeful things as to why she didn't want to do the show. She just said, yeah, it's good money, but it's not worth like the price of my emotional well-being. And she just let that sit. And that's also, again, uh, validating of the friendship with Miranda. I've mentioned the, the breakup with my friend, you know, which quite contrasts how supportive um, you know, like my romantic relationship is. And I, um, you know, my relationship with my parents is complicated too. We were separated for a time. We're not now, but now everyone in my family goes to therapy, literally everyone. My mother goes to therapy. My father goes to therapy. My sister goes to therapy. Guess what? My grandma doesn't go to therapy. She's still out, but everybody like goes and working on ourselves, healthy boundaries. I I had the nicest Christmas this year. I don't know that I've ever enjoyed the holidays before ever. And I had a really nice Christmas. So, you know, knowing a boundary and only allowing people into your boundary that respect your boundary is really important. If I follow through with this cutting off this friend, I don't think it's going to be aggressive. I think I've gotten to a point in my life where it's just like, you know, Jeanette with Miranda, I don't want to do this because X, Y, Z, I don't need to validate it. I don't need to back it up. I don't need to write you my own memoir or a sonnet or a, a sing you a song. I, I don't want to do it. I don't have to do it. Um, and so that to me was just a really, really, really powerful couple sentences um, and very validating that, you know, things are going to be all right for her. She's got that part figured out and some people go their whole lifetime without figuring out how to set that boundary. I also loved her slips and slides, you know, like this is just a slip, like, cause everybody slips, you can slip and you slip, but you keep it there. You don't go back. I just love the way that that kind of set her free a little bit from this, the eating disorder. And I, I really liked that too. Um, in addition to everything else that you guys are saying, just, the, the inner strength that she had, the ability to accept that her mom did abuse her. She wasn't her best friend, did not have her best interests at heart. Um, and yeah, that at the end, she's like, I'm, I'm doing this for me now, whether it's my career or my relationships with my dead mother, you know, it's, this is for me. And that's not selfish. That's taking care of herself. And I think it was so great that she wrote about it, you know, because it helps people, helps normalize that kind of a, a strength. Um, Cause that's, that's hard. That's hard to do. Um, yeah. I really, I liked, I liked, I loved all of that, that part. Um, 
And and I kind of find the ending too. Um, it wasn't wrapped up, but she's such, everyone's so much a work in progress, you know. And I think it ends perfectly. Like, you know, this is where we we're caught up now. We're caught up to her journey and her self um, improvement and, and awareness and all this, um, all the other stuff. So I am hopeful that she writes, you know, a part two. Um, I don't know. In 20 years, I might not really care when I'm 70. <laughs> It'll probably be called "I'm Still Glad My Mom Died," and I want a percentage yeah. if it if it's called that. And at 70, maybe some other people too. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, yeah, that's that's yeah, yeah. One of the really interesting things in the end that nobody kind of touched on is when she's sitting at the grave site and she's looking at all these things that they came up with to describe her mom. And she's like, none of this is true. Like, so why do we do that? Why do we glorify the dead? And we try to present this picture that everything they did was amazing, that they're going to be terribly missed. Like me personally, when my grandmother dies, I've already told my family, I have absolutely no emotions. She was such a horrible person. So why do we try to make other people feel like, oh, they were the best. It's it's pointless. It just serves to make our life harder because we have to live with the fact that we put this image out there for them and they're not here. So they really don't care. You know, I, I was at my granddad's funeral sitting next to his daughter, my aunt, and this is my dad's dad. And he was, you know, the latter part of his life, he'd gotten himself under control. But prior, he was a massively abusive alcoholic and the guy was like oh charlie was such a nice man and my aunt and i were like clutching each other laughing because that was not true at all (laughs) i don't know but what do you what do you get up there and be like well you know charlie beat his wife in 1947 and threw his kids down the stairs and you know came home drunk every night and i mean what do you say (laughs) I've been at a funeral before where you could tell the person speaking was like really stretching and it's, it's very uncomfortable, but to what Nita was saying about the, the grave marker, the gravestone and how it literally had so many words on it because I, I feel like it was, it was comedic relief, at least from my cynical ass perspective uh, because the woman was, extra in every sense of the word she had a hold on all these people to the point where they had to put all the words on it she couldn't just have a regular tombstone the 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 lasting impact that she left on all these people was like well she's going to be offended if we don't we don't put everything right and so it's you know from Jeanette's perspective how she she kind of uh comes to the end and she's like this is not true she seems to be, you know, we don't know the stories of the siblings and the other characters kind of involved here, but I imagine she's the farthest along in her healing journey because she's able to accept the the, the end of a chapter for her and she was able to walk away. But yeah, I, I it just crossed my mind when Nita had said that it was like, this woman was so over the top and overbearing and sucked all the air out of a room. But literally in the, the the cemetery, she's doing that with her, you know, everyone else got like 10 words on their gravestone. And this one has like extra wings added to the the gravestone just to put all the words on there. It was it was 
it's just very uh, fitting for who she was. So. And, and real quick, when she gets up to leave, she hears the guy or somebody else playing What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers. And I'm like, if that is not, if that's real, that's crazy. Like that's, that's divine in- intervention right there. Like what a fool believes, just put your shit down, pack it up and roll the fuck out. Leave, you know, like we're packing up, <laughs> we're in the wagon, we're going west or east or wherever it is she needs to go. Like we're done. Yeah. What a fool believes. I was like, wow, that was, that was cool. Um, John Dell, uh, thank you for mentioning expectations. I do think she's going to be okay because she said no to some pretty big expectations that were put on her. And that takes like so much like inner strength and like having a really close friend in Miranda and telling her no, you know, like that's one of the few people that's in her support system. And that can really like, I've lost friendships over the word no before. Um, and I don't know if you guys watched it, but after I read the book the first time she was doing a press tour and she went on Red Table Talk um, with an expert on narcissism. Her name's um, Dr. Romani. And it was an amazing episode. If you guys haven't had a chance to watch it, but you can I tell. Seen it, but I yeah. love her on YouTube. I love Yeah. Yeah, no, she's fantastic. But Jeanette, when she was telling the story and she would get to the harsher abusive stuff, she would go cold. And like, there would be no emotion on her face and it would just be very withdrawn. And then she was able to talk about some emotional things, but uh, that's a very big tell (laughs) about like some of these things that she's gone through. Um, And it's a tell like of how real it is when you can like cut off and just talk like, yeah, that sounded like it happened to someone else. Um, So the work that she did to be able to not only write this book, but then go on a press tour to talk through this super hard stuff that happened to her in her lifetime. And this is all like her laundry, her dirty laundry, her family's dirty laundry that I'm sure they were told things that happen in our house, stay at our house. Don't talk about blah, blah, blah. Um, Just if you guys haven't had a chance to watch that, I would highly recommend it. it. It branches out on a lot of things. And her mom was undiagnosed. So we have no idea what her mom has. My mom does not believe mental health or does not believe mental illness exists, even though there's a million different reasons, you know, for it. But that mentality is still prevalent in, I won't say older generations, but it's everywhere, but more in older generations than younger right now still. And so we all know (laughs) that her mom had something. We all know whether or not it was trauma or abuse in her in her past. She was not mentally well, um, and whatever the label that gets put on it, she did damage to her children. Um, and so we do get caught up in words and diagnosis and labels, but it it kind of boils down to what people do to other people and like what a mom can do to her kids. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad again, I know I've been saying it since we started doing this. I'm glad she wrote this. I'm glad she put this out there. Like it really did give a lot of, like a lot of hope to like someone like me with a really similar story. Like this girl's mom is 70% similar to mine. You know, my sister was the golden child. I was the scapegoat, you know? So it is nice to kind of read these kind of stories that are coming out and way more public are you kidding me in the seventies or eighties or nineties? Could you have released a book saying, I'm glad my mom died? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
you can't talk about your mom being horrible. You know, it's such a taboo thing. You definitely probably did something to deserve your mom's treatment of you if she did, you know, so there's a lot of not believing going on in this. And so I love that every person, at least that I've seen her do a press tour has been supportive or tell me more instead of, oh, that can't possibly have happened, you know, so I really liked that. And um, I think, I think she's going to be okay. I really do. And I would like to see a, a memoir for the next 20 or 30 years. I would like her and her brothers to, if they have kids, like, what does that look like? You know, like, what does therapy look like? Because honestly, the way they grew up, they should be in therapy for as long as it's helpful. <laughs> and and as many different voices telling them it's not okay, you know, because it took me a long time to hear that from a lot of different people before I accepted that it wasn't okay. Um, you know, so. And we only really know her side of the story. We don't know what the boys' experiences were, you know. I mean, I'm sure they, I would imagine they would feel neglected. But didn't she say the exam stopped when she was 17? So I imagine um, the boys were examined too. Like, I, anyway. He was also, one of her brothers was showering with her too, if I remember. Correctly. Yeah, when he was 16. Yeah. Yeah, that's so not. That's so messed normal. I think I can speak for everyone when I say that the experience of going through this book with other people was definitely very beneficial. When I picked the book, again, it was uh, simply because it was a bestseller and it was of a person that I had, had been familiar with. This was definitely one of the hardest memoirs I've ever read through. So at least from my perspective, I really appreciate all of you for reading it with me and uh, to have like a, have created a safe place for each other to be able to like process this, to, you know, be able to unpack some things about the story, to learn some things. You know, sometimes someone would bring something up that, you know, we, I hadn't thought about it uh, that way before. So I think it really enriched the experience. And so at least from my perspective, I'm happy that all of y'all were here. To anybody following along and listening on the podcast, thank you for being here as well, because it was a heavy book to get through, but lots of great nuggets and lessons and uh, areas for growth uh, that have come up through the experience. So yeah, uh, as far as uh, this book club is concerned, it, uh, the plan is for it to keep going for 11 more months, depending on how long the, the grant money uh, lasts. But yeah, I, I really appreciate all of you for, for participating. And, you know, if you I mean, we all found this book helpful. But if you know somebody in your life who um, might benefit from reading the book, lend the book to them. And I think that's the power of books is that um, it's something you can gift somebody. It's something that from them experiencing someone else's story, they can learn some things too. So it's kind of cool how, you know, Jeanette probably wrote this book to as part of her own healing journey, but it's going to have a ripple effect. In this context here, we have seven people who came together to read this book. And the ripple effect just from this small group of people reading it has already been very significant. So um, it's cool. Just, it, I mean, we'll never see the whole impact, but it, it's really cool that the story is going to help and help some people start their healing journey or to support them along the way. So 
Thanks for listening to this episode and be sure to join us back next week as we begin the January Mental Health Book Club covering Michelle Obama's new book, The Light We Carry. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode's show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.